God, we, uh, we come before you right now. We want to acknowledge our place again, God, that we are totally void of understanding and, and uh, without your spirit, none of us have stumbled upon the truth. And uh, so we ask you that you would send the power of the Holy Spirit right now. Come, we ask you to testify, Holy Spirit, to the gospel. Not with with reasonable arguments only, but but that you would give a living witness to the um, to the testimony of Scripture that you have left, that you've established through the uh, through the Jewish nation. So, God, we ask you, give us living understanding tonight. Give us understanding, Lord. Amen. All right. Um, all right. So last week we just kind of tackled the the part you got to do because you just need to you just need to touch on worldview because it's like it's the underlying theme of everything that we look at and um, and so hopefully it was helpful just establishing that. Uh, that you have a testimony of Plato and you have a testimony of Moses that God left in the Torah and the prophets. And the testimony of Moses is that um, God made everything good, the heavens and the earth. And then he sat down ruling over the heavens and the earth and that he's promised after a period of discipline on the human race, he's going to restore everything. And, uh, and so that's a, obviously a broad overview of what we're going to refer to as the timeline of redemptive history or just the timeline, the timeline of the gospel. And uh, But we're going to start to fill in the, the blanks a little bit over the next several weeks. And uh, as always, you guys feel free to ask questions if you have them. Um, and we'll, we'll leave a short time for uh, question and answer at the end. So, um, let's get started. So, we're at uh, session two, the hope of the gospel. And um, point one, biblical theology. That's not, it's basically instead of biblical theology, you could just write, Brother Joe, don't write Brother Joe. Just, I'm saying. Uh, you could just, you could just write the message of the Bible. Like, what's the message of the Bible? And, uh, <laughs> okay. um, so the testimony of the beginning, uh, we just want to highlight that the testimony of the beginning of creation is the same as the witness of the end. So you have in the beginning... Um, you have, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Now, the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden. Now, the garden isn't called Eden. Just, just it's, it's in the east of a region called Eden, the eastern part of that region. And he put man who he formed in the garden in this eastern part of a region called Eden. And in the middle of it was the tree of life. A river watered the garden that flowed from Eden. Um, later on in the prophets, it talks of Eden as a, as a mountainous region. And so there was a river that flowed down from the mountain, and it, uh, and it watered everything in the garden. And, uh, and then the Lord said, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you're free to eat of any tree, but you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it, no, I did the NIV, um, it, in the day when you eat from it, you will surely die. And that, we'll bring that up later. It's a, um, early, early, actually even the intertestamental um, Jewish witness actually sees that as a really significant phrase in the day when you when you eat of it you'll surely die but um, so the point is is that we have to get in our heads from the beginning that Adam was not going to die 
Adam was going to have a body that perpetually regenerated because of the tree of life. And um, so then a curse was put on Adam, the curse of death. And uh, God said, and also curses the ground because of you. Now it's going to yield food, but only through painful toil. It, it will produce weeds, thorns, and thistles, and um, you'll eat the plants of the field. Uh, for from dust you are, and to dust you will return. And uh, so likewise, the testimony of the end of the book, right, that God leaves about the end, and not only in the book of Revelation, but throughout the rest of the book, this is the testimony, just it specifically highlights the symmetry that it's at the very end. Then I, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. Um, the, other, the other thing you highlight that I somehow skipped over. Oh, no, I did do that. Um, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. So they heard the sound of his feet on the leaves or whatever it was. They heard Yahweh walking in the garden. And um, so likewise, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them and he, they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and, and be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning. There will be no more death. So you, don't, so you have to go back. Adam was not going to die. The time's coming when death won't grip the human body anymore. <clears throat> there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The old order of things. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then the angel showed me a river of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, coming down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river was the tree of life and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be a curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. They will see his face as his, and his name will be on their forehead. So you have the testimony of the beginning is intentionally no death. There's a garden with the tree of life and a river going through it and God dwelling with man with, a, with an everlasting, perpetually regenerating body. And this is the testimony of where it's going again. So this is, this is in the diagram, call it the biblical hope. You, you have a simple... You have a simple diagram in the scriptures. And of course, it's filled in with some other details. We'll specifically focus in on the cross next week or the, the, the following week. But, um, but you have simple timeline and it's just separated into this age and the age to come. And this is how the scripture presents it over and over and over again. This age and the age to come. Likewise, when they proclaim, this is a, an understood. So likewise, when they proclaim the gospel, the, the, the apostles, this is what they were proclaiming. And so when they went to, uh, to, the, to the Jews in, in Acts chapter 3, or, or they didn't go to them, but they were questioned because they healed the layman at the gate called Beautiful. And, uh, and Peter goes, why do you look at us as though by our own piety we did this, but because this man had faith in Jesus, he's healed. And then this is his, what his, his response to the Pharisees and the, and the rulers of Israel is. He says, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing. It's uh, the word refreshing there is the time of the, of the giving of breath again, is what the Greek word means. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, the Messiah, in other words, right? Because Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's a, it's a messianic title. 
It's a Jewish title. It was, it was like a prime minister, nearly. It was, he's going to be the, the ruler and the shepherd of the restored nation. And uh, whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So the proclamation of the gospel is, is simply, and broadly put, re- repent so that, this is specifically to the Jewish leadership, and we're going to explain why it, it particularly pertains to them. Your repentance uh, basically has a lot to do with this. Um, heaven must receive the Messiah until the period of rest, the restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of all of his holy prophets from ancient times. So this is the common hope entrusted to the patriarchs, the prophets, and the apostles as well. So there's a lot of these we could go through, especially in the genealogies, Genesis uh, 3, 4, 5. But uh, like Lamech, so uh, so Noah is like nine or ten generations removed from Adam. But you got to remember, like uh, he didn't, he probably was alive at the same time Seth was. You know what I mean? So Adam, even though it presents it as this massive tragedy, because curse was introduced and all of this, Adam died at nine thirty. And so the, the, but the biblical witness is that that's a tragedy. It's not something to be, wow, if I could just, Bible presents it as a, as a tragedy. Shouldn't have been like that. And um, so Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. <clears throat> Lamech may very well have been alive with Adam. So this is kind of the way the time frame works. And and just think of simple simple cultures still today is stories are, are passed down um, from one generation to the next. And imagine if the great patriarch is still there, the one who walked with Yahweh in the garden and he's telling the stories. And so Lamech li- lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, which means rest, saying... This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. And so that's because at the beginning in chapter 3, like we're going to get to in the next passage, there was a promise of uh, one that would be sent, a seed of the woman, that would bring back the original blessed condition. And so likewise, testimony of Moses, uh, he wrote in Psalm 90, You turn men back to the dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood, they fall asleep. In the morning, they're like grass that sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew, and toward the evening, it fades and withers away. It's not natural for grass to do that, right? Like it doesn't sprout in the morning and die in the evening time. He said, but this is what our lifespan is like. For all of our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do you you understand the context? So teach us to acknowledge that we've been put under a curse so that we might conduct ourselves in a way that's pleasing to you. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? Just move on, just for the sake of time, got to get through. This this, This is going to be really passage heavy um like the whole session is and uh which is what i like to do i just we'll probably work over a hundred passages in the the time of the course 100 120 and so um and so hopefully there's enough space to leave notes and things like that 
Um, I try to do that, but you can always ask questions as they come up too. So testimony of Isaiah 46, remember the former things long past for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Declaring the end from the beginning. And, uh, Likewise, Paul says, but this I admit to you, he's on trial, that according to the way, which they call a sect, which is what they called the followers of, of Jesus, I serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law or the Torah, and that is written in the prophets, which is a theme that we'll continue to highlight is they, they understood that there was a witness given down from the law and the prophets that had to be heeded in order to, in order to properly understand the gospel. Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there will certainly be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the wicked. So Paul, contrary to what's assumed, Paul n- never had a different hope or expectation or even theology than the Pharisees. He had the same one. He just renounced self-righteousness and put his hope in the cross, put his faith in the cross and in a substitutional sacrifice because that's what God always ordained, right? Righteousness and good standing before God was obtained by repentance, which was personified by a substitutional sacrifice. So Paul was just simply going, I'm going to listen to that, forsake self-righteousness, but cling to the same hope. Uh, Titus 2, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Likewise, the, like the singular hope, the singularity of hope in the New Testament is, is, so, is so crystal clear and, uh, and completely overlooked, usually, especially in the modern church. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope completely. In that, um, likewise, the early church. Just a couple of quick quotes. Uh, Justin Martyr, but I and I, I think I read this last week. But I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points, we are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead, a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will be built, adorned, and enlarged, as the prophets have said. And then this is a cool quote by N.T. Wright. I'm not an N.T. Wright fan, um, but this was uh, before he, he wrote a book, and uh, this is a great point. He just kind of shot it down later in his book and made it meaningless. But this, this, historically speaking, this is beautiful. So the early Christians hold firmly to a two-step belief about the future. First, Death and whatever lies immediately beyond. Second, a new bodily existence in a newly remade world. Within early Christianity, there is virtually no spectrum of belief about life beyond death. Whereas early Christians were drawn from many strands of Judaism and from widely differing backgrounds within paganism. And hence from circles that must have held very different beliefs about life beyond death. But they all modified that belief to focus on one point in the spectrum. We have plenty of evidence of debates about all sorts of things. And the virtual unanimity on the resurrection stands out. Only in the late 2nd century, a good 150 years after the time of Jesus, could we have late 2nd century. Remember from last week? Clement and Origen. 
only in the late second century, a good 150 years after the time of Jesus, do we find people using the word resurrection to mean something quite different from what is meant in Judaism and early Christianity, namely a spiritual experience in the present leading to a disembodied hope in the future. Right? This is what we all grew up with. This is normal. But this is a beautiful quote here. For almost all of the first two centuries, resurrection in the traditional sense holds not just center stage, but the whole stage. Let's go to point two. Any any questions about any of that? Yes, ma'am. Um, okay, I'm just a little bit confused because... So are you, are you saying that most of Christianity actually believes that when Jesus returns, they won't have a renewed body? Like a renewed body? They will live in heaven, and thus they'll have some sort of body that's suitable for heaven. Is That's just super weird. Yeah, like like the most recorded. John fourteen last week, remember? Yeah, that's John good. 14, that's the hope of John fourteen one. It's true. Jesus is coming back to take them to heaven. Yeah, that's what that belief in that passage is. Yeah. No, no, please interrupt whenever you want. Um, you know, the, I I heard I heard a couple years ago the, the most recorded song of all time is "I'll Fly Away." It's just, this is what it's assumed to be. But, like, but are, are you, like, making a distinction between the fact that they would be well with Jesus? Like, like, like Christianity has kind of said that they'll dwell, will dwell with Jesus in spirit form as opposed to in bodily form. Right. Okay, but it is bodily form, right? Like, it's I mean, bodily it, it will be it will be this body that comes up out of the grave, right? Yeah, this body, okay. and it won't be and it won't be made into something that's suitable for a more spiritual existence because it will only be more spiritual in the sense that it's basically completely dominated by the spirit of God. Yeah, are you going to touch on? This might be kind of on the on the point of. For instance, where Paul talks about a natural body and spiritual body, right. how our understanding the the uh, yeah, the, that's good. Uh, twisted view that saying that we're going to go to yeah. heaven, but also the spiritual body should be some kind of um, right ethereal body. Instead, right, the spiritual body is a it's a, it's a real phys, it's not a physical, but it's a yeah. tangible yeah, it's a tangible body. Yeah. Paul just calls it spiritual. Right, it's it's the same because Paul Paul said that. Um, in the same passage, Paul says that Jesus was raised with the spiritual body. So he, 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 was, uh, he, he died, and then he was raised with a spiritual body. And the spiritual body is the thing that he ate with and that he, people touched him with. So it was extremely intentionally, um, it was physical. I mean, this was the, this was the major point about all of his interactions with the apostles that are the ones that are recorded or was was demonstrating the physicality of it um does that answer a little bit what you were asking yeah and maybe this is a total bunny trouble like if people are cremated or burned you know at the stake or something like that is it just sort of that like god just right, it, trumps it yeah i'm sure that's the case yeah. i mean like um yeah, a, a lot of groups don't like to do that for that reason. But yes, Maya. So what we're talking about that some Christians have since 150 AD believed that after the resurrection, which is spirits. After the resurrection, okay, so they would view the resurrection as a present tense experience, typically. So um, primarily, and they'll say there's an aspect of it that's future, but. The, the resurrection, I'm not trying to uh, make a straw man of Christianity in general. Um, just, just the hope that's, I mean, if you go and talk to your friends and your family that are believers, they're going to assume that eternity means heaven. And, and it's, what's funny is that eternity, which is a word that doesn't even exist in the scripture, somehow didn't just make it into like the, you know, completely overlaid over so many passages 
but somehow it actually became a geographical place too. I'm going to eternity. <laughs> it's not the case. Yeah, it, it's it's so the the testimony like we're trying to get to is that what God made in the beginning, He's going to renew it, not destroy it, and make something new that's more spiritual. But He's going to recreate this earth, and He's going to renew it. There, the only passage that even hints, within a very bad translation. I might add, that the earth would be destroyed is Second Peter three. And without you can we'll go through it. Um, but but in fact I think we'll go through it here shortly. But just in a nutshell, if that's if that's the case, he said it's going to be destroyed just like God destroyed the earth with the flood. It wasn't destroyed, it was cleansed. So uh, point two, God's is everybody good on this to move on? And I think a lot of those things will become more concrete, hopefully. But uh, God's steadfast love. Uh, so Yahweh's faithfulness to the covenant, and Yahweh presents himself in context of Sinai and really, really introduces himself covenantally to Moses, who is the mediator of the covenant. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh to you. Uh, and then he, he does, and he said, the, uh, Yahweh, or the Lord, descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by in front of him and, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. What we're going to focus on is that word, loving kindness there. It's probably the most theologically potent word in all of the scriptures. Um, so I, I put a little description from the theological word book. So it's the word chesed. Chesed. And um, so just uh, the, 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 the Lonida description is that it is it means loyal love. It's an unfailing kindness or devotion. It's a love or affection that is steadfast steadfast, based on a prior relationship. Okay, and the prior, they're simplifying this concept we're going to read right now. The, the word is used only in cases where there are some recognized ties between the parties concerned. It is not used indiscriminately of kindness in general, haphazard, kindly deeds. This is why Coverdale was careful to avoid using the word kindness in respect to God's dealings with his people Israel. So kindness doesn't Kindness and mercy do not do justice to what the word means, although it's commonly translated that way. The theological importance of the word chesed is that it stands more than any other word for the attitude which both parties to a covenant ought to maintain towards each other. Sir George Adam Smith suggests the rendering leal love. Leal is, you know, the antiquated form of loyal. The merit of this translation is that it combines the twin ideas of loyal and lo uh, love and loyalty, both of which are essential. So it, essentially, that's the idea. That's that's the idea of chesed. So let's look at uh, um, we're we're going to look at a few uh, few uh, verses that bring out the the this this framework of God's chesed or his his loving kindness, his, his faithful love. So you'll find this common throughout like the, uh, through the Torah and the prophets and all the historical books is this phrase, he's, the Lord is good and his loving kindness is everlasting. And, and so that's the chesed word. And so listen to the context of this one. Now when Solomon had finished praying, it's the ordination of the temple, Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. So fire came down. Everybody's watching. They're consecrating the temple. They know the hope of Yahweh coming to the earth. They know that when Yahweh comes back, everything will be restored. Like this is understood. That's why Solomon's temple is basically laid out to, to be a picture of a garden.
the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not enter the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord filled his house. All of the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good, and his loving kindness is everlasting. What do they think is about to happen? They think it's, it's D-Day. They think, it's, they think it's, it's, it's Yahweh coming down. And so they're proclaiming, he is good, and his faithfulness to the covenant has endured through all of, all of our wanderings through the judges period and all of these things. So, uh, paragraph B, the framework for the Hebrew covenants is the eternal existence of the earth. It, this is the, the whole framework for every covenant in the scripture is the eternal existence of the earth. So this is, without that as the underlying theme, all of the covenants mean nothing that we can stand on. So let's go start with Genesis 13, right? When uh, This is uh, one of the appearances he made with uh, Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are, look north, south, east, and west. All the land that you see I will give to you, and to your offspring forever. So two things ought to have hit Abraham. So Abraham, guys, isn't that far removed from Noah. Does Noah know why he's named rest? Of course he does. And so he's not that far removed. We have to remember that. And so when God says, you're going to live in this land forever, Abraham, Two new pieces of, well, one new piece of information, another reiteration of what he already knows. One, you are going to live forever. Two, this land is going to be around forever. Or Yahweh is not faithful. Genesis 17, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant. In fact, let me just pause. Go and walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I'm giving it to you. Hebrews 11 highlights this little trek he went on. He walked through the land and he slept at night with a tent and then he just kept walking. And Hebrews 11 says, this is because of Abram's great faith. He lived as a sojourner in the land of promise. And likewise, Stephen, before they stone him, he testifies to, to the Pharisees and he says, but God didn't give him one square foot of the, of the land is an inheritance yet. So we know it's still coming in the future. And so the fact that he walked around and he didn't try to build a house, he walked around and goes, I believe it. I believe you're going to do that. They say, this is how we know we trusted God. Because he knew it was still to come. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. The land of Canaan will be given as an everlasting possession or Yahweh's not faithful to his word or he's going to change it. And quite frankly, if he can change it, it's the same thing as him not being faithful. Psalm 89. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Essentially, it's untouchable. You've said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever, your throne for all generations. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Your, your offspring will be established forever. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring will endure forever. 
and his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it will be established forever, a faithful witness in the sky. So that, again, that assumes two things. It, you can't base it, you can't base the fact that your descendants are going to live as long as the sun and the moon if the sun and the moon are going to be destroyed. That's a logical fallacy. Like to, to build up your promise and your faithfulness based on something that's not going to happen. Likewise, Jeremiah 33, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as, as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that night and day will not come at their appointed time. Then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken. So it's assumed day and night will go on as they are. The order of creation will continue. It's not going to end. Okay. Um, so uh, let's go to paragraph three. Let's get through page. Let's get through the next two pages. Then we'll take a quick break. Um, God's faithfulness to creation embodied in the descendants of Abraham. This is something we're going to get a lot more into, but um, start with the top, what's called sometimes the Proto-Yongelion, which means the first gospel was uh, early church fathers, uh, Irenaeus specifically, called this verse right here, the, the Proto-Evangelion, the, the first time the gospel was preached, was right here. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, so that's the, right, that for dust you are, and dust you will return, the, 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 the curse, right? He said, but to the serpent, he will crush your head. This this one who's coming, uh, the seed of the woman. And then Adam turned to Eve, which literally means life. Because she would become the mother of all living. That's why he named her. Because the seed that would restore everlasting life would come from her. This is why he names her that. So everlasting life is going to come from you. And he turns. So this is like right after the, literally, literally, for dust you are to dust you will return. And he looks at his wife. This is the very next verse. And he goes, I'm going to call you Eve. It's not like, he, he's not like, bummer. I just had this awesome idea for a name for you, woman. No, it's like, this is the story. The story is they named them according to the hope. After Cain killed Abel, at the end of chapter 4, she names her next son Seth, which means appointed. And she said, because God has appointed another seed for me since Cain killed Abel. Abel can't be the seed because he's dead. Cain can't be the seed because he's wicked. God appointed another one. Maybe this one will be the one. And then we, we find the seed comes up again through the lineage of, of the family of Abraham. This is when he says in Genesis 22, In your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Depending on what church you go to, you talk about being blessed from the pulpit and it means a hundred different things. But when Abraham has probably a third-hand testimony handed down directly from Adam, that God, the, the, the testimony that he has is Genesis 1. God created man in his own image, and the image of God had created a male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So this is blessing in his mind. It was circumstances 
in which he could actually walk out his calling to subdue the earth and to bring order and beauty to the earth. And this is what was going to happen again. So this is why in uh, that same sermon of Peter's in Acts 3, he says, It is to you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenants which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning each one of you from your wicked ways. It's the same bit. Next, the seed is going to come more narrowly through the family of... Then if we had longer, we'd we'd break it down more. Then the seed is said to come through the tribe of Judah, because when Israel is blessing his sons, he talks about the scepter is going to be in Judah until the one comes to whom it belongs. Um, And then uh, it's going to come more specifically, not just through the tribe of Judah, but the seed is going to come through um, the offspring of, of David, the family line. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will get, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So the seed will not only restore the earth and remove the curse, but he will set up a kingdom to actually do what Adam was called to do. To actually be able to regulate and and facilitate blessing to all the nations like he promised to Abraham. It will be facilitated through a government with an offspring of David ruling the government. He will, be, he will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Psalm 89, we just went through that. I'm not going to do that again. It's Jeremiah 33, I just did that one too. Okay. So in, let's go to the top of page 6. You have, this is the hope of the covenants. They, all of the hope of the covenants were talking about the same thing. Right, so you have you have the earth and what's going on below. You have a real God with a real throne at the height of the heavens, and Him promising and giving grace to the patriarchs, to Adam, to Noah, to Abram, to Moses, and to David, and everything that He said assumed the eternal existence of the earth, and always led them and gave them grace to walk faithfully in their generation in context to the promise of the restoration. Then, so we'll just real briefly go over consistent hope through the New Testament writings, and then uh, we'll take a quick break. Uh, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So this is how the New Testament starts. He is the Messiah, the son of David, the one promised to be given to David, who's going to set up a government, the son of Abraham, the one promised to come from Abraham, who's going to bless all the families of the earth in context to this government. All the crowds were amazed, Matthew 12, and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Right? That's who they're expecting. It's consistent. And he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, he's correcting the disciples for their hardness. And he says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Because he asked them, What's, why, the, why the long faces, fellas? And they go, because we were hoping that this one was the one who is going to be the constellation of Israel. And, and he says, you slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did he not have to suffer and then enter into his glory? Not, not you dummies. You really thought it was going to be an earthly kingdom and an earthly resurrection? That's not what he's saying. 
Then they gathered around him, or, uh, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. Acts 1, after his suffering, he presented himself alive to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive, right? Thomas, touch here. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. We're going to go into that phrase, the kingdom of God, the next passage or the next portion here. But he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. So they probably, for 40 days, they sit with him, probably paying pretty close attention. He just came out of the grave. For 40 days, he's explaining the kingdom of God. And what do they ask him? Verse 6, they gathered around him. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're not confused. They're not, and, and Jesus doesn't ever say, you dummies. It's not going to be that kind of a kingdom. It's going to be a spiritual kingdom. And then uh, Romans 11. So there's a consistent hope. Now, and the reason... The reason Romans 11 and, and this theme is going to become so prominent from here out, from here on to the rest of the course, is because it's assumed that God has chosen an older brother to administrate the blessing. So what do you do if the older brother is rebellious and refuses? You, you, you have to keep faith, like Paul did, that there will be a remnant, you know? So that's why Paul says in Romans 11, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, so... Inasmuch as I've been sent by God to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry so that I might move them to jealousy. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? It's the older brother. They have to administrate the inheritance. Not the only ones that receive the blessing. But they have to administrate it. Okay, any questions? Yes, sir. Was there ever a Jewish expectation that the seed or the Messiah would be from heaven or from God? Or yeah, they... it's, it's, it's divided even today. So it, it's, it's divided because they can't figure out. Um, the rabbis historically have always been divided, so the rabbis today are divided. They can't figure out how the Messiah could come riding on a donkey and how he could come from heaven in Daniel chapter 7. So how can he... And so there's so much dialogue uh, around how there could... They, they, uh, the idea of two Messiahs has been very prominent. So like when they're naming their kids and like are they under the assumption like, hey, I could, I could be... I could be the guy. I could be the one... It, at, least, at least at one period of time... That was, yeah, it was. I don't know how prominent that was. Uh, I mean, they still had the hope. Um, we're going to get into this more in the next few weeks. But, but, the, but the problem is, is you have the testimony of the scriptures very simple and plain. Uh, it's straightforward. The law and the prophets, it's intimidating to us as Gentiles. And that's normal because Jews were supposed to explain it to us. And so that's the awkwardness is normal. But the, the issue is that when you come to the New Testament, it's not simple and straightforward. It's very complicated. And so it's, it's, you, can, you can navigate through it and understand what's going on because there's a few things that are swirling that have come down from the return from exile under Nehemiah and then that 400-year period in the intertestamental time called Second Temple. 
period, uh, it things became really confu- really complicated because if you think about it, they never thought about themselves as a religion. They were a nation, present nation that was being discipled to be a future nation. That's the way they understood themselves. But when you have the Torah and then God sends you into exile and you have no sovereignty, no ability to enforce your own laws, what becomes prominent is the idea of Gentiles gathering around us. We're not a nation. What do we do? And so they adopt the idea of we're a religion that someone has to convert to join. And this is why there's so much confusion reading through the New Testament is because of that simple fact. And we're going to spend a lot of time on that next week. Um, Because this is central to how we understand, like, why am I not wearing a, you know, a skullcap? Why why are we not pretending like we're Jews? No, because we're not. We don't have to be Jews. And uh, so we're going to work through that. There was just a lot of complication, you know, by the time you get to, you know, the time of Jesus. But, um, yes, sir. So Jews that are still, like, devout, practicing, reading, um, and they see the verses, like, they do not know that you had to suffer before you. They don't look at those, of course. Well, like, I mean, to be honest with themselves and, like, really find out the yeah. truth, but there's got to be some Jews out there that, like, are, like... Okay, I see, but there has to be a suffering before that. Are they still looking for the suffering? Are they still looking for... Yeah, they are. Um, uh, many of them. So there's there's these guys now called um, called anti-missionaries. And they basically, their their mission is to teach the Jewish people how to, how to not be led astray by Christians trying to share the gospel with them. And so they have arguments for every feeble Christian interpretation of the Old Testament. And I would say over 50% of them are legit. And um, doesn't mean that it's right or righteous or that God approves of it. just means that there's so much foolishness that's taught that they have a lot of ammo. And so right now it's really, it's, you know, when you talk about Judaism, it's, 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 very, uh, it's very split. There is, there is, you know, a remnant of, you know, devout Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox and things like that. But it's very divided uh, because you can't... They're trying to make sense of information with a hardened heart. And you just can't do that. And uh, it's not just hardened by their undoing. It's hardened by God. Because He's ordained that He would hide His face from them so that these things would play out. So that the Holocaust would happen. And... Because it's not until those things play out that the redeemed nation understands. And I know that needs some qualification, but we'll get get through that next week also as we talk about the covenants and what God has clearly said from the beginning is going to happen to them in context of the covenants.